welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watching by a higher, and there will be higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment all the toil with which one toils under the sun of the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place." All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. 
For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever... (laughs) We'll stop there. Uh, The grass withers and the flower fades. And even in a lengthy reading of passage, the Word of God stands forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our living God, help us to so hear Your Holy Word that we may truly understand and that understanding we may believe. And in believing, we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking Your honor and glory in all that we do through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, I want to take you all the way back to the chapter 5, and starting in verse 8. Remember that section way back yonder? Let's go back to that, and what I want you to do is, I want you to see that Solomon is starting with a topic that he has introduced before. He is returning to the topic of the presence of oppression in society, and the absence of justice and righteousness. And when I read this, at first reading, it's confusing. I think, Why is the king, who indeed can in fact confront and deal with oppression, the one who in fact upholds justice and righteousness, why is he again on this theme? But as I considered it a little deeper, and as I considered you to do the same, and and looking at this paragraph more closely, we find, and this is key, that Solomon is not lamenting, he is observing He's not advocating indifference, but counseling consideration. Look at verse 18. This is the key. Do not be amazed at the matter. He is using the matter of oppression and injustice and unrighteousness to engage not only our minds, but our hearts as well. He knows that when you and I see oppression, we will be concerned, and rightly so. We may even be incensed, desiring justice for the oppressed, seeking righteousness and justice. And when we see it, you and I want to do something about it, and rightly so. But sometimes in our angst, sometimes in our action, we can run past what the situation is telling. What Solomon is doing here is he's telling us to slow down. He is counseling us to go deeper, to look at these atrocities, and they are atrocities, and he's asking us to consider why. The presence of oppressions speaks. The absence of justice and righteousness is telling. Solomon is teaching us here about fallen human nature. Do not be amazed. None is righteous. No, not one. But if you think that people are basically good... Then Solomon says, hey, uh, come on over at this province. 
I want you to stand here with me and I want you to peek down in the valley and I want to show you the oppression. I want to show you what man can do. If you believe that people are basically good, Solomon says, come see what they can do in the absence of justice and righteousness. Man is capable of the unthinkable. If you think that people are basically good, then Solomon says, let me show you how a corrupt government works. You think you've got it bad, let me show you this governor who's wicked. And even in a country where the king cultivates the land to feed the hungry, Solomon says there will still be in that land people who manipulate the system, people who oppress the poor. They will do it for their own gain. They will not care about other human beings. They will oppress, in fact, the very vulnerable, the widows and the orphans. And so if you think that people are basically good... You're not only naive, you're uninformed. Because Scripture's really clear on this point. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's pretty clear. But one of the areas that we see this evidently is money, wealth, and possessions. I'm reminded of what Paul said to young Timothy when he wrote, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You've seen this. I've seen this firsthand. I've seen the love of money carry away. It's disappointing. You would say it's tragic. And it's almost always predictable. You see it coming, don't you? You can see the love of money take root. And it changes a person. Francis Bacon said, Money is a great servant, but a bad master. And it's true, isn't it? When money is a servant, we can do many things with it for God. And it, with it, God allows us to enjoy things. But when money becomes the love of your life, captivating your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, then your love for God runs cold. And you will not love, but use, even oppress, even do the unthinkable to your neighbor when, lo when the love of money takes root. And so that's what I want to start with. I want to start with the love of money. Solomon's spending quite a bit of time on it here. And one of the signs of loving money is what I call being consumed with consumption. You know what I mean by that, right? Being consumed with consumption. Your thirst is for more. And it's unquenchable. And as soon as you get what you want then, well, you're not satisfied with that, and so you want more, and you want more. And this, incidentally, does not apply to the wealthy, but also to the poor, and all of us in between, doesn't it? When you become consumed with consumption, then your work, well, it's no longer gratifying. It's no longer thinking of our work as glorifying God with our gifts and our abilities, but it's a means to make more, to do more, 
to accumulate more. I've talked to men and women before in the church. Christians who love the Lord Jesus Christ who feel like they're trapped. They're trapped in in a rat race, so to speak. Because you can't outrun consumption. Got to have more. Got to travel more. Got to do more. Got to accumulate more. Got to be more. On and on and on. It consumes you. And for the consumed, it's a spiral downward. And Solomon warns that money and the accumulation of wealth will not satisfy. But I tell you what it will do. It will build a balance sheet of, a balance sheet of vanity. You'll point and say, look at my wealth. Nothing. Nothing of substance. Solomon tells us of a business owner. And this business owner hoarded his profits to his hurt. And then one day, he makes a bad business deal. And in that business deal, he loses everything. And after losing everything, that which he treasured taunted him. That which he hoarded haunted him. And having built his life on his wealth, Solomon then, and I might say in masterful storytelling, Solomon then tells us now everything is loss. He sees life through the lens of loss. Lost inheritance for his son. Lost necessities for his daily living. Lost significance in his world that puts such an emphasis on his wealth. Describing him like Job, Solomon says, quote, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. In other words, a lifetime of wealth. He had it all. He had made it all. He had all of this wealth and he lost it and he's there and he's got, he's got nothing. But unlike Job, he doesn't say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead, what he does is he secludes himself in self-pity. Solomon says that he hunkers down in darkness, in much vexation, and in sickness, and in anger. He is angry at the world. And he's angry at God, if he acknowledges Him at all. You see, when the love of your life is money and she's gone, there's nothing left to live for. The love of money, then, as we understand it, is really a form of idolatry. Think about that with me. The love of money is really idolatry. You're elevating something above He who is worthy of worship. And when you love God's gifts, and money is one of God's gifts, when you love God's gifts more than God, then what happens is, is those gifts become tyrannical idols. They're robbing you of worshiping God, robbing you of glorifying God, and I'd also say, also robbing you of just enjoying God's gifts. Someone who is so consumed in worshiping the good gifts of God, they can't even enjoy the gifts themselves. God can give you wealth, God can give you possessions, God can give you honor, 
but what good are they if you cannot enjoy them? And that's what Solomon's asking. What's the point if you can't enjoy these simple pleasures of life? It's like the rich fool in Jesus' parable. When the accumulation of wealth becomes your God, you no longer enjoy and use your wealth graciously in gratitude to God. But what do you do? You go out and you build bigger and bigger barns. My wife likes to go, you may want to help me with this, like pull in front of her if you ever see her driving to one. She likes to go to estate sales. And they cost me money. Because she goes and she gets bargains. She tells me she's saving me money. I've yet to figure that out. I'm saving you money. Huh? You're spending it. I'm getting these great deals. Have you ever been to one of these in a state sale? My wife goes through with excited expectation, seeing all the bargains. I went with her, it was a couple of months ago, I think it was, and I'm depressed. And I'm walking through, not because she's buying half of the things in the house, I'm going, my stuff is worthless. <laughs> the things that I own, that I think, ah, oh, my book collection, yes, sell for pennies. I mean, it's amazing to walk through and they're, no, they're not there anymore. They've, they're gone, they're dead, and their stuff is there, and it is, and I mean it is, worthless. Even the good stuff. It's kind of like what I'm reminded of the parable. The man who built bigger and bigger barns, and then he dies, and guess what happens? People are buying the stuff in his barns for pennies on the dollar. Or consider Solomon's scenario in chapter 6. And it's a sad scenario. He describes a man who has wealth and possessions and honor. And I think about it this way. Here's the way I would frame this example that Solomon gives. Imagine that God had blessed you with really long life. And in that long life, that God had blessed you with the wealth of children. And you're just surrounded by children in your old age. And you would say, yeah, that is wealth. That's rich indeed. Now, here's the catch in my imaginary scenario drawing from Solomon. For your whole long life, you can't enjoy your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. So you're old, surrounded by them, but you can't enjoy them at all. Instead of being their beloved patriarch or matriarch, you'd become, well, you'd become like an inherited piece of unnecessary furniture that shows up at an estate sale. It sells for pennies on the dollars. That's you. That's what you become. And as you grow old and as you near death, you're forgotten. You're so close to death and nobody's thinking, what about the funeral service? At least a graveside service. Have we thought about the liturgy and the arrangement? Somebody call Brandon. Nobody thinks that. They don't even know that you're around because you're just that old piece of furniture. And Solomon says, in graphic detail I might add, he says, a stillborn baby is better off than that man. In other words... That's what love of money gets you. No enjoyment, no love, or memory, or heritage. Come in here, all you little dollar bills. 
I'm so wealthy. I'm surrounded by all my wealth. They don't care. They don't love you. They don't care about you. They don't even know you. And then you die. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. So that's the negative side of what Solomon's teaching us here. Now I want to switch to the positive side. Because you've got to have both in this to understand where Solomon is taking us. And so I want to switch from the love of money. And then I want to talk about the gifts of God. Of which money is one, but there are many gifts of God. And in contrast to Solomon pointing to the wealthy who can't enjoy it, he points to a simple laborer. Now think about it. This is the person who goes to work, works hard, probably enjoys his work, receives his wages, and enjoys the simple pleasures of life. He does not lay awake at night worrying about his barns. He has no plan to build bigger barns because he doesn't own a barn, right? But when he sleeps, it's oh so sweet. He's not worried about barns. He's not worried about anything. He goes to bed and he sleeps in tranquility. He finds satisfaction in the use of his God-given gifts. He enjoys, and this is a word I think has disappeared from modern vernacular, he enjoys a job well done. His food and drink, they're simple fare, but he enjoys them with succulent pleasure. Solomon says, work, eat, drink, like that guy. With gratitude to God who provides for all that you need and all that I need. Now, as just a point of clarification, Solomon is not advocating simplicity for simplicity's sake. He's not advocating communism. He's not advocating not owning possessions. That's not the point that he's making here. The point is, is that a life lived in enjoyable gratitude for all that God has given is a good life. God gives us life. Solomon says, God gives us our lot in life. God gives us our work. Solomon says he also gives us the ability to enjoy our work. God gives us our wealth. God gives us our possessions. And God gives us the ability to enjoy all of that without guilty pleasure. It's a gift from God. So to be angry with your life, your lot, or your wealth, then is to be angry with God. And to receive God's gifts without Responsive gratitude, well, that's an offense to the giver of all good gifts. Think about it this way. God has given us this life. He's given us our lot in this life. Yet how often do we think of life as a curse and our lot as a burden? That's the deceit of our sin nature. But the truth is, our lives are not accidents. It's no mistake that you are who you are and that you are here where you are. God's perfect design. Scripture says that He formed us. I love the way the King James put it. He knit us together in in our mother's womb. We are fearfully, we are wonderfully made. 
You are and I am. And even before our conception, God conformed our days, it says in Psalm 139. Likewise, God knows the beginning from the end. Guess who doesn't know the beginning from the end? Us. But God knows. And so while I go frustrated, and if you wonder if I ever grow frustrated, no, don't ask my wife. But I get frustrated too. And then Solomon says, John, God has done it. God is sovereign. He knows the beginning from the end. Trust the Lord and be grateful. Be grateful to the Lord. Let us give thanks to God for our life and our lot. As James says, because every good and perfect gift comes from above. So also God gives us our work. God gives us our ability to enjoy it. Yet how often do we consider work a grind, even a curse, even a mere means to a paycheck? Just working for a paycheck. This is the deceit of our sin nature again. But the truth is that God commissioned us to have dominion. He commissioned us to cultivate and to keep the garden. God has gifted each of us with talents that testify to us being made in the image of God. You are unique. I am unique. You have gifts. I have gifts. These are from God. And part of our human uniqueness is revealed in this giftedness, which is from God. And God blesses us with work to use our gifts. He blesses us with service to use our gifts. If you're working right now, use your gifts. If you're not using your work and your gifts, let's work together, help you find another job. Use your gifts. If you're retired, use your gifts to serve. What a blessing it is to a church to see retirees using their gifts to the glory of God. So let us give thanks to God for our work, for every good and perfect gift is from above. But I'm not done. I got more for us to thank God for. Thank God for... One of my favorite topics, food and drink. God gives this to us, and yet, how often do we go through our day without a passing remembrance of who gives us our daily bread? Such is the seat of our sin nature. Let us be faithful to give thanks. My daughter Grace Ann, granddaughter Grace uh, Rosie, have been staying with us for the last several weeks leading up to my, my youngest son's wedding. And it's been a joy and it's been a delight and I love it. And one of the things that we've done is we've done nightly prayers. We've done prayers at mealtime. And so when it comes time for dinner, we sit down, I give her a napkin, she puts it in her lap, I put my napkin in my lap, she then takes her napkin and throws it on the ground for the dog to get. We're still working on the napkin part. But I say, okay, let's say prayers. Now, I've never prayed like this before in my life until about two weeks ago. Now, I pray like this. Come to my house, you're going to pray with your hands together. Okay, Rosie, let's say prayers. Okay, she, she kind of bows her head. Really, she just looks around, see what's going on. And, and her, her Essie and her mama and her papa, we all got our hands together. We're saying our nightly prayers. So we go to the next side. Okay, we're going to say our nightly prayer time. Okay. And then we've taught, taught her how to pray, to say amen. So we get to about the third or fourth day and it's lunchtime. And papa's just charging in to peanut butter sandwich. And Rosie's sitting there and she says, prayers, prayers, 
like, oh man. Yeah, we're going to say prayers. So we put, put our hands together and we say our prayers together. And you know what? We laugh, but it is a wonderful thing to teach our children to be grateful to the Lord. Because that lousy peanut butter sandwich that I had is a gift from God in every meal that I have and every drink that I have. And all of this is a gift from God. And so let us be faithful to teach our children to pray before their meals, not because it's required, but because it teaches them and us gratitude. In fact, to say a blessing, had one guy say for, well, don't say a blessing before dinner because you know that food's already blessed. I'm like, me no think you understand word. Ukoresteo in Greek, blessing means to give thanks. A blessing before a meal is, thank you God, you have answered my prayer for my daily bread. Thank you. And so let us give thanks to God for our food and drink for every good gift is from above. And then finally, let us give thanks for our wealth, for our possessions, and our ability to enjoy them. And yet, how often are we dissatisfied with what God has given us? Lusting. We call it other words, of course. We call it the American economy. We call it capitalism. We call it consumption because I need to keep the economy rolling. Whatever word you want to use, when you lust for things more than you love God, you're captivated by this. And it's a degradation of gratitude. But the truth is, whether we have just enough for today, or if we have enough for a lifetime, it's from the Lord. He's the one that has given it. And whether our possessions are few or many, they are gifts. And, and I love this, Solomon says, and God also gives us the ability to enjoy them. We're not like the guy who's old with lots of kids but can't enjoy his kids. God says, Solomon says, yeah, God gives us the ability to enjoy what he has given. So let us give thanks to God for our wealth, our possessions, for every good and perfect gift comes from above. In closing, I think about often Israel in the wilderness. Their ingratitude. They're wandering through the wilderness. Now think about Israel's state. They had been freed from slavery. They had been promised an inheritance. They were fed miraculously daily bread from heaven. And they were frustrated with God's provision. And I see myself in Israel. If anything, if anything, this picture should be a reminder that our greatest need is not a better lot in life. It's not a better job. It's not a better meal or a better drink. And it's not more money and possessions. Israel witnessed the miraculous. They experienced the glorious. And yet, were consistently dissatisfied with God's provision. They treasured their temporal satisfaction over God's promised provision. And often, you and I are tempted to do the same. Even those of us who possess the greatest treasure in the world. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. 
And then in his joy, he goes and sells it all that he has and buys the field. What was Jesus saying? He's saying that there is something that is more valuable than anything. He's saying that there is something worth selling everything. He is saying that there is something that is ushered in and he reigns over it. The kingdom of God and he's the king. And he's the treasure. He's the most valuable thing. The greatest treasure is Christ himself. He cannot be sold. He cannot be bought. But received only by God's grace through faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we receive God's gift through faith with joy. Because God gives the gift. A gift that you did not earn, that I did not earn. A gift to be received with gratitude. And I might add, a gratitude that will last an eternity. Such are the unsearchable riches of Christ to be received and enjoyed by undeserving sinners. <laughs> That's the greatest news in the world, isn't it? We have the treasure. We who don't deserve it. This means that the work God gives in Christ is worship to Him. This means that the life God gives and our lot in it, in Christ, is abundant life. Whatever our lot this means that the possessions that God gives in Christ are incomparable to the treasure His He is. This means that as sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, we can sing, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, High King of heaven, my treasure Thou art. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, you know our temptation. You know that we are often tempted to put things above you. The practice of idolatry runs rampant today, even in the church. Oh God, may we put you above all. May we worship you and not money. May we live lives of gratitude for all that you have given us and most especially the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us today to focus on the good news that we have and that it is by your grace alone and to your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.